0: Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University.
1: Welcome to Slavery and Its Legacies, a podcast of the Gilden Lerman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition. Slavery and Its Legacies interviews visiting scholars, activists, and others about their contributions to the understanding of slavery, past and present, and its ongoing role in the development of the modern world.
2: Hi there, this is Tom Thurston, and today uh, I'm interviewing Christina Fryer, who is an assistant professor of history at SUNY Buffalo State. She received her PhD from Princeton University in 2012. Christina's been a semester-long fellow here at the gilder Lehrman Center, uh, where she's been working on her current project, The Measure of Empire, Disaster and the British State in Post-Emancipation Jamaica. Christina, it's a pleasure having you here.
0: Thanks, Tom. It's uh, really great to be here.
2: Uh, before we begin to talk about your uh, project, could you say a little about how you became interested in, uh, in the study of, the British, of British imperialism?
0: Um, So it was sort of a uh, circuitous route. Um, It actually sort of started with uh, my own uh, personal background. My mother uh, was born in Jamaica, uh, and she migrated to uh, Britain as part of the quote unquote windrush generation. She was not actually on the windrush, but uh, she migrated to Uh, to Britain in the 1950s. And so I think growing up, I had always associated Jamaica with Britain in some way. Um, And so as I got to college and I started studying history, I was really interested in sort of figuring out or learning more about Jamaican history and couldn't really figure out how to access Jamaican history. I was taking a lot of uh, Latin American studies courses. And they weren't talking about Jamaica really at all. Um, and then I took a few Caribbean courses. And of course, uh, that is where they you know, talked about Jamaica, of, uh, of course. But uh, the field of Caribbean history is, is, is pretty small. Um, and so then by just a sort of random set of coincidences, I ended up taking a lot of British history classes towards the end of my time in college and found for me that that was a really interesting and exciting way to access um, the study of the British Caribbean. So in fact, uh
2: you're, you have your own podcast series, mm-hmm. new books in British Studies, which is part of the New Books Network, mm-hmm. and and uh, and I'm so I'm curious. Uh, uh, in the study of Jamaica, you began, or at least uh, the conversations you've had at the center, with the uh, Morant Bay Rebellion. And I, first, I wonder if you could say
3: a little to our audience about uh, the rebellion. What what was at stake? And- sure. Um, So actually, the Morant Bay Rebellion is sort of about the halfway point through uh, my project. This is a book
0: project that I've been working on uh, here at the Center. Um, So the Morant Bay uh, Rebellion is a rebellion that happened in October of 1865, 1865. Um, And it was a peasant uprising um, that happened in the town of Morant Bay, uh, which is sort of the major uh, parish town of St. Thomas in the east, uh, now simply known as St. Thomas. Uh, And St. Thomas is, uh, it is known for, this is where the Blue Mountains are, and the Blue Mountains are uh, where you get the amazing coffee. Um, So this is a rural, uh, a mountainous uh, parish, um, but it also has a coastline. and And it's relatively close to uh, Kingston, which um, by this point uh, was the major commercial port um, in Jamaica. So um, this is a rebellion that stemmed from a series of uh, sort of local conflicts over an estate trespassing trial. And just to give a little bit of background here, um, in the By this point, 30 years after uh, full freedom or after the emancipation of slaves um, in the late 1830s, uh, plantations uh, really started to uh, collapse as freed people moved off them uh, in large numbers, moving into some of the mountainous or uh, more hilly hinterlands, um, uh, working on their own small plots of land for subsistence agriculture. So the plantation economy collapses and there start to be a number of abandoned estates. Um, and so in in uh, in the fall of eighteen sixty five there is a trial of somebody who was accused of uh squatting on one of these estates um, and this trial sort of gets out of hand um, and the person who is on who who is uh, on trial uh his cousins and friends and family sort of go down to the to the courthouse um, There is a confrontation at the courthouse um, and then this this then leads into a uh, a march onto Morant Bay. Um, by hundreds of uh, of black peasants from a place called Stony Gut, uh, which was uh, sort of a village um, a few hours away from uh, from Bay, um, and this was led by a man named Paul Bogle, uh, who is now known as one of the uh, national heroes of Jamaica. Morant Bay is important um, not just because of this uh, right. not just because of this this, this uh, moment of of peasant politics, um, but because it becomes a national uh, or sorry not a national it becomes a colonial wide problem, not because the peasants had colonial anti colonial ambitions necessarily, uh, but the governor of Jamaica at the time a man named Edward Eyre um, panics. He believed that this was going to become an island wide uprising. Uh, there's really no evidence sure. uh to this effect um, but he sort of he believed that this is going to be a second Haiti, and this is a constant concern across the Americas that um any any slave rebellion or any peasant uh, uprising uh could become the next haiti um and so he represses uh he represses the rebellion uh very severely. Um, And really sort of casts a very wide net of who he believes is responsible for this. Um, In particular, he identifies uh, one of his key political rivals, uh, a politician by the name of George William Gordon. Um, At the time, um, the sort of race language of the time would have identified Gordon as a colored man, which basically meant that he was a mixed race. Um, And Gordon had been one of uh, Bogle's key uh, political rivals and... uh, not Bowles, uh, Ayers, uh, right, key right. political rivals, and Ayers takes the opportunity that, that's presented to him by the fact that he had called martial law um, to arrest Gordon on uh, on, on um, charges of sedition and treason, um, saying that he was a key fi- a key figure in in uh, the uprising. Again, there's very li- little evidence um that he had any actual organizing um role with the rebellion. Um and so Gordon was arrested, um tried in basically a sham trial, um, and then hung uh for uh for again these these false charges. Um Ayer is then sent back to uh to the UK um and there sort of becomes a very long um scandal among intellectuals and controversies that I won't get into. Um, but basically Morant Bay becomes a, a significant moment in the political history of Jamaica, as well as a significant moment in the history of the British Empire, uh, more broadly. Right. You, in fact, your uh, your your
2: project is interesting in that it uh, it's both uh, uh, a real deep look into into crisis moments mm-hmm. in the history of Jamaica itself, but in ways that reveal. Uh, the larger British Imperial project and, and what I think's really uh, quite fascinating and uh, you so what is uh, what's your thinking behind that? How is it that these uh, that these crises these flashpoints uh, why are they such rich uh, sites to kind of think about uh, the the colonial project? Mm-hmm.
0: Um, well, you know, and again, Morant Bay is sort of the middle, the middle right. uh, crisis moment, and it's the one that is the most famous within uh, within the historiography. Um, but all of these moments, and I should say there there are five of them. Um, some of them are sort of more what we might describe as natural disasters; others are more sort of administrative crises moments. Um, I think they all are happening in a colony where things are pretty rapidly changing. Um, after emancipation. I think we uh, tend to think of emancipation as a singular moment, the moment in which, um, in which enslaved people become free. Um, and I see it as much more of a longer political, social, uh, and cultural, and of course, economic process. Um, and so Jamaica is pretty rapidly changing Uh, both on the island itself, but also in how it's being perceived as part of the broader British empire. Um, In the late 18th century, Jamaica had been the most lucrative uh, plantation colony. And at a point in the 18th century, it was simply the most important uh, and most valuable British colony in the world. Um, And that changes very rapidly as a direct result of uh, emancipation. Um, And so what you see starting in the 1840s, and really, I think all the way uh, into the 1910s, and my project stops in, in roughly around 1910 um, is that there are projects of trying to rescue that potential um, and trying to, to to find ways to make Jamaica, um, if not as important as it had been, to, to sort of uh, revive its economic uh, its economic possibilities. Um, and so each of these crises moments, Morant Bay being a key one, um, are moments in which. That um, in which the the, the possibilities uh, are shifting, right. um, and in which there's a really big discussion about what the possibilities are, and which possibilities still remain, uh, which opportunities have been supposedly closed off. Now, I should say, all of this is coming at this at the at, at a moment in which um, new forms of racial um, prejudice are developing, in large part with. In in large part tied to the ways that freed people responded. Um, so freed people were not especially interested in reviving the plantation economy, um, and they made choices that they best that 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 gave them the most autonomy over their time and over their labor. Um, and these were fundamentally at odds with what the British were hoping uh, for. Um, so that conflict as
3: well, um, you sort of see at all of these moments from the eighteen forties all the way to uh, nineteen ten. Right. They, I mean, they're nominally British subjects, but do, are they? They are not just nominally British subjects. They are fully uh-huh. British subjects, and, and in a certain
0: way, emancipation makes them that. Um, so they are. Uh, so so once they are free people, they are British subjects with with rights. Um, and there's and they are very clear that they have these rights. Um, and these rights include things like petitioning. Um, which is a right for all british uh, which was a right for all British subjects and a very popular um, political tool um, used both by colonial subjects as well as subjects um, in uh, in the british isles uh, itself um, so this is the right to petition this is the right to uh, have uh, to be treated fairly by the queen. And there's a very clear sense, particularly among black subjects, that their colonial governors are not necessarily protecting them, um, but that perhaps parliament or the colonial office, which was the the um, government office most directly um, responsible for administering the colonies, um, and even the queen herself. And for the for my period, it is mostly uh, Queen Victoria, so I, that's why right. I say herself. Um, and that even the queen herself that that these are uh, places and
3: people and ideas that they can appeal to when the government on the ground is failing them. Right, and this is might be a time uh, for to hear a little about
2: the kind of political structure uh, uh, ruling Jamaica itself. There's this tension. Uh, it seems between uh, between uh, looking at the crown and then looking at at local elites as far mm-hmm. as who controls that, and and in fact, I think um, in 1866 there's a new uh, constitution, and mm-hmm. and so so how you know how is that playing out as kind of in response to crises uh, and disasters, but but also how do uh, the emancipated uh, Jamaicans uh look at
0: this at the, at this crisis mm-hmm. um, so there are a number of different levels of of governance uh, that are happening um the two i 'll focus on now is sort of what i what I call the colonial government, which is uh the colonial governor and sort of his his staff uh, there's a, there's a, he has a secretary et cetera um, and these are the colonial governor is a career bureaucrat, basically. This is somebody who um, has spent his entire career in colonial slash civil service. Um, he moves around from post to post, so he might, uh, he and it always is a he, um, he might be the governor of Newfoundland for a few years, then uh, have a position in Bengal, uh, then spend some time in New South Wales, the Cape Colony, and then in Jamaica or Barbados or British Guiana or, or what, whatever. Um, so these are people with fairly little um, detailed knowledge about what the concerns in any given colony are. So they tend to come to Jamaica Fairly uninformed. Um, some of them have had some experience in other uh, in other Caribbean colonies, right. so they might have a uh, have a have a handle on the specific mix. Um, and and what was unique about the Caribbean colonies, particularly after emancipation, um, is that these were neither fully settler colonies. So this was not the situation that you see in Australia um, or New Zealand, where you have a large white settler population um, that is dealing with a a, a small um, maybe not necessarily quite so small, but that's dealing with a a, a population of um, indigenous subjects. Uh, we should be All clear right. um, in the Caribbean, there really are or there were uh, no very few. Um, and in Jamaica, pretty much no uh, no indigenous uh, populations. They had been wiped out um, during the early uh, centuries of, of uh, colonization. Um, so, in so unlike the the white settler colonies, these are places where there is a relatively small uh, white Creole population um, that is trying to maintain dominance and power over um, a large. Um, black population that at the time was often described as natives but for me it's really important that they actually are not natives that these are people right. who are the descendants of uh, of enslaved people brought over um, from uh, the African uh, continent and why that's important is because the other type of colony that is uh, very prominent um, in the British Empire um, are um, sort of colonies of domination um, in which um, or resource extraction in which we have in which uh, sort of This is the the idea of sort of chiefly princes or whatever, Mm -hmm. um, in which very small uh, European uh, populations use the existing uh, local hierarchies. Um, And those existing local hierarchies don't really exist in the Caribbean. So it's a very strange... Uh, mix that 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 the colonial governors are are often ill equipped to handle. Um in terms of at the at the metropolitan level then there's the colonial office and that's who I focus uh, primarily on the colonial office colonial governors and then local dignitaries um as well as of course the the black population of freed people. Um and the colonial office these are again career bureaucrats um to some degree because they are divided by areas of expertise, so there's a West India section, um, to some degree, some of these people actually are a little bit more informed than are uh, the governors, but they are also very much caught up in the intellectual and, uh, and, and political modes of Britain. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are not people, some of them had some abolitionist leaning, some of them didn't, um, but these are not people who by and large are as concerned with freed people's autonomy um, as freed people are. Uh,
2: so, uh, in addition to uh, uh, Morant Bay, what are some of the other? What are uh, in, in in kind of more detail? What are the other uh, disasters that you're kind of focusing on?
0: Mm-hmm. So I'll take them in chronological order. Uh, the first is a cholera epidemic between uh, one thousand, eight hundred and fifty and one thousand, eight hundred and fifty-one, roughly. Um, the second is um, a sort of years-long scandal over conditions in the Kingston Lunatic Asylum. Hmm. Um, And part of what's happening there is um, there's a sort of crusading doctor who is trying to force the metropolitan government to take this seriously. Um, And so that is roughly 1858 to 1862. Um, then we have uh, Morant Bay, um, wow. and as you uh, as you alluded to, um, what comes after Morant Bay is a new constitution, one that removes uh, that, that eliminates elections. Um, so while there had not been a lot of um, of representation in government from people uh, for people of African descent, um, that potential pathway is completely eliminated in the 1866 Constitution. Um, That constitution is challenged, um, and this is the the piece that I presented a few weeks ago, Um, that constitution is challenged by a series of constitutional reform movements um, that sort of come to a head in the 1880s, uh, 1882, 1883 in particular. Um, And so the case, the the disaster that I'm looking at there is is a fire in Kingston that burns down much of Kingston. And that sort of overlaps with and parallels a number of right. these constitutional reform movements in some interesting ways. And then the final case study, we move to 1907, uh, which is the earthquake uh, that uh, completely decimates uh, Kingston, Jamaica in 1907. Uh, Jamaica is on the same fault line as Haiti. Hmm. Um, and so as we know, that's, that is a, a semi-active fault line that really wreaks uh, quite significant damage. Um, in 1692, Port Royal, which had been the, the major port, Port Royal, excuse me, part of Port Royal basically falls into the ocean as the result yeah. uh, of a of of an earthquake. And actually, there's some really interesting archaeological stuff because it because of the way it sort of fell in. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's actually been more uh, more more um, material goods that have actually sure. been preserved, things like china and the like. Yeah. So there's some actu- uh, some very interesting archaeological work. Um, so in 1907, that that uh, there, that earthquake um, really devastates Kingston. But the the angle that I'm taking there is looking at what happens when American military, um, sh- when when American naval ships um, try to help, and they're uh, turned away uh, by the Jamaican governor. There's some interesting ideas there about uh, t- about U.S. diplomacy, U-
3: the U.S. rise in that region, um, and how the British are handling it at a moment that they're very that they're spread very thin. So and. This kind of uh, brings us back to
2: uh, you talking about uh, looking at the post-emancipation period mm-hmm. as extending uh, into the early 20th century, mm-hmm. uh, and so that you really are periodizing uh, Jamaican history in a way that's uh, quite different. Is mm-hmm. it is it uh, many historians kind of look at Morant Bay as being a moment that? marks this kind of decisive uh shift what are the consequences to i mean most people kind of don't know much about mm-hmm. historical periodization but you know what does it mean by deciding
0: where to begin and end mm-hmm. your story mm-hmm. um so yes uh 1865 has become this this moment that signals or that has signals of the end of, a, of, a, of an emancipation experiment or an emancipation project. Um, and I sort of fundamentally reject that. Certainly 1865 is a, is a significant turning point. There's no getting around that. Um, but I don't think that that is the end of sort of emancipation concerns. Uh, and what I think is really at stake there um, is that, A, I think if we fall into that framework of seeing 1865 as this endpoint, we're actually following the framework of people who didn't care about black people. Um, so that for me is I, I'm not interested in following the framings and the ideas of uh, colonial officials just because they thought that Jamaica was, was sort of done uh, doesn't mean that I have to. Um, but actually, I so I think so. The general consensus is that um, the British Empire turns fairly hard, fairly, fairly firmly away from the Caribbean at that moment. And I actually think, aside from not wanting to fall into that framing, the framing set by historical actors who, to be blunt, were fairly racist, um, I actually don't know that that's entirely true. There are still right. attempts to. Do something with Jamaica there' are still people people still see jamaica that it's it's described as sort of the ancient one of the ancient colonies, and by that they mean a colony set up in the same way as uh, the thirteen colonies right. um, but there 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 is a sense that 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 this is a tragedy. Um, not necessarily a tragedy for freed people, but that this is a tragedy for the island of Jamaica itself, um, and that something should be done to try to rescue it. And I think we miss that entirely if we just sort of shut up shop at 1865. Um, I think the other thing, um, particularly um, if we're going back to the the earthquake, um, is that there's not really a clear sense of how the U.S. or even how Canada um, see the Caribbean region if where and and how and how their intentions in the region map onto or fit into british ideas about the region and you miss that entirely if you're not looking if you're not looking there um and so uh, it turns out that the british were by by the turn of the of ni- uh, the turn of the 20th century the british were um really sort of relying upon the U.S. to, there's sort of a very fragile caretaker uh, arrangement. As things are hotting up in Europe, um, they have to pull back their their Navy. They can't be spread so thin. Um, And so the U.S. Navy is actually basically supposed to be protecting the Caribbean. And we don't know this at all if we are focusing entirely on Australia or on India or on uh, the African colonies, as, as important as they are. I think there's something to be said for what Happens to minor colonies that are still part of an imperial system that are not being let go. What happens to them, and what does that look like? Right,
2: and it also seems that that one of the old uh, narratives of kind of British imperialism is this uh, is coming coming uh, from this anti-slavery stance, and then uh, portraying the. Colonial project as also an anti-slavery project, Absolutely. which is hard to do when your eyes are uh,
0: set on Jamaica.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Absolutely, um, this is this is a really a really key point. Um, the post-emancipation empire, the post-slavery British Empire, was one that was very explicitly uh, resting on its anti-slavery uh, coattails. Um, the abolition of the slave trade first in eighteen o seven, and then the abolition of slavery in eighteen thirty four, uh, and then followed by the abolition abolition of apprenticeship, which was a transitional system in eighteen thirty eight. Um, this is a lot of political work for British imperialism, uh, which then got to go around the rest of the world, saying that we are a Benevolent empire. Right. Oftentimes they made that right. uh, contrast to, they, they contrast explicitly with uh, France, uh, which was slower uh, to abolish uh, slavery. Um, so there was a very clear sense of we are a liberal, humanitarian, and benevolent empire, and thus we are, uh, th- it is right for us to continue uh, colonial expansion. Um, and I think, you know, to be sure, historians are problematizing that uh, that idea. But I think it's hard to do that as aggressively as I would suggest we need to if we're not looking at the place um, where that conception came from. That conception came specifically from freeing uh, enslaved peoples in the Caribbean. And then if we sort of shift away, it's really easy to not question that. Um, as robustly as I think we need to, because what happens by the time we get to the 1870s, 1880s, really there are few, if any, hints of this liberalism. In fact, what has replaced, um, what has re- what, co- right. what we see in 1866 is actually the creation of an authoritarian system. Um, and I don't think we are as clear and uh, as, as bold in stating
3: that, which we can't be if we're not looking at the Caribbean. Right, and uh, the Caribbean itself and the Caribbean Basin has its is just
2: uh in in this period mm-hmm. that you're describing is is under huge international uh turmoil mm-hmm. and there are independence movements mm-hmm. and there are contests between uh the Spanish and, absolutely uh and so how uh
3: so how i mean which seems so important mm-hmm. for the imperial project absolutely um and and here again i think um so area st- you know
0: imperial studies and area studies really had a moment sort of in the in the 80s and, and 90s but i think that the the um the area studies that were most the most influenced british imperial history have been uh african studies and uh subaltern studies yeah. or south uh south asian studies um all to the good sure um but i think for a number of reasons um Caribbean studies has not, there, there's not quite been the same level of uh, of connection with uh, Caribbean studies, particularly post-emancipation Caribbean studies um, and uh, British imperial history. And I think what then happens is that we sort of see Jamaica and Barbados and British Guiana and Trinidad and Tobago um, as British islands that are sort of almost separate from what's happening in the Caribbean basin, right. when actually the Caribbean basin was incredibly uh, important, but also incredibly turbulent during this time, as, you, as you've mentioned. Haiti is continuing to struggle um, after uh, after its revolution and after the really shameful way that uh, that European nations, particularly France um, and the United States, uh, treated it in in, in its aftermath. Um, the Caribbean basin, which for my purposes I sort of see as a greater Caribbean basin, so that for me would include Venezuela, um, uh, Colombia, et cetera. Um, these are all places where. Um, independence re- <clears throat> revolutionary projects um, are really coming under some serious scrutiny um, and, and, a, and a certain level of, of violence that is actually spilling over into Jamaica. Jamaica has mm. a role to play because it was a key, um, it, particularly Kingston, um, was a key way station um, in in trade. All right. Um, so a lot of ships are actually moving goods to and are or, or using Kingston as they move goods, and some of these goods are contraband goods. Some of these goods are uh, weaponry right. uh, and ammunition that are being uh, they're being sent to places where they're revolutionary projects. Um, in the 1860s and 1870s, Cuba is in the middle of a 10 years war, which is a war um, that starts, it's a, it's a war against Spain, but it is also a war about uh, about slavery and about emancipation. Um, so I think seeing Jamaica as playing some role and wondering what the British think that role is, is again something that we just
3: can't do if we're only focusing on Jamaica before 1865. Right, and you, um, and your project, uh Kind of in the immediate aftermath, really,
2: of the uh, the United States and, and its uh, Spanish American War, mm-hmm. which has, of course, a huge political impact mm-hmm. uh, on the uh, Caribbean basin. Yep. And uh, so, why then is it? Is there
3: just a, a, a fundamental shift of power, or? I think it's a little bit more tricky than that. It's not because the the, the British do not give up.
0: Uh, they're not giving up their, their their Caribbean colonies. They do not, and there there are some discussions about. Uh, um, to, to backtrack a little bit, part of what happens when the when the governor um, when the governor turns away the U.S. help is that he is very much concerned that U.S. aid. Um, And in particular, the uh, Marines were planning to take a policing function around Kingston Mm -hmm. in the middle of the chaos. And he sees this as potentially sliding into an invasion. Um, And these are concerns that I think are fairly reasonable, given what we know about uh, U.S. expansionism into the Caribbean region, again, as you've mentioned, after uh, the Spanish-American War. Um, So he is concerned about uh, – he's trying to assert British sovereignty over the island by not allowing uh, the the military of another nation to take up policing function. Um, And what I find in sort of the internal minutes of the colonial office is that fundamentally they agree with this – but they are also – they also have to have – the U.S. has to be willing they, – they need to keep the U.S. on side, willing to protect um, the the Caribbean in case of, say, some other European power uh, – some an, another Europe, European powers incursion. Um, and as we know from the uh, occupation of, of Haiti in, in – um, In 1915, there was some concern um, that the Germans might. uh, I don't know that this concern was was necessarily factually rooted, but there was some concern that the Germans might uh, try to expand into the into the Caribbean. Um, So they both want to assert British sovereignty, but can't do so so harshly as to make an enemy of the U.S. who they're relying on basically to make sure that their islands are not uh, are not taken over. Um, So it's a very fragile uh, it's a very fragile mix. Um, I stop at 1910 not because I think that's the end of a post-emancipation period. Um, I actually personally think that emancipation is something we should still see as, a, sure. as an ongoing process. Um, but for me, it sort of ends a certain kind of, of of narrative. And you know, again, to these questions of periodization, you know, we we all have to stop somewhere. Yeah. Um, but it sort of ends a kind of of, of narrative um, that I think where we're moving from um, these sort of ideas of uh, of emancipation as as filled with possibility to a moment in which the British are no in which it's sort of a definitive moment in which the British are no longer seeing Jamaica as a priority that they can necessarily maintain. They're not giving it up. But I think that does. Sort of mark a moment um, in which they can no longer afford, especially as uh, things are again happening up in Europe. This is a f- just a few years before World
3: War One. Um, they can no longer afford to keep hoping and hoping and hoping for Jamaica. And for the uh, Black Jamaicans mm-hmm. during the period that
2: you're describing, how do how does how do their political fortunes uh,
0: change? Mm-hmm. Um, this is of course harder to determine just because of the the, the sourcing available um we do know um that there is a there's a heavy turn towards peasant uh, agriculture and certainly by economic indicators um that might not seem to be the most ideal uh the most ideal choice um but i think for particularly the first generation of freed people as well as their descendants um autonomy over their time and their labor and the ability to determine how to use those i think was more important than uh financial fortunes mm-hmm. um there's a lot of research to show that family structure was very important uh to uh to Jamaicans again as a way of of um Trying to repair what uh, what slavery had done, um, so there's a lot of effort for people to try to reconnect their families in any way um, that they could, even if only even if only partial. Um, by the time we move into the 1880s, these um, these battles are still there, but they're they they've subsided a little bit in part because the plantation economy um, is seen to. Um, It it seemed at least sugar plant the sugar plantations are seen to not not be necessarily all that viable. Um, But the economic fortunes of black Jamaicans remains quite poor. Um, and starting in the late 19th century and early 20th century, we see widespread migration of uh, of Caribbean, uh, British Caribbean migrants um, into uh, the canal zone. So we oh. start to see them in Panama, in parts of Central America, looking for work. They are intending to return um, to their home, but they're looking for work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is also part of why one of the things that happens and that I note in the Um, in the aftermath of the earthquake, is that they actually have a quite sophisticated understanding of what Jim Crow is. And Mm -hmm. they are very clear that they do not want um, a Jim Crow system imposed by the U.S. So again, these fears of annexation are in part fears about the racial system um, that the U.S. has. And they've come into contact with that in large part
3: with their dealings in the the Canal Zone. Um, So Jamaica also becomes less viable for its own people. Well, that's absolutely fascinating, and I'm,
2: as uh, all of us at the Gilder Lehrman Center, really looking forward to your book, and uh, have enjoyed having you with us. Thank you. I've, I've loved being here. <laughs> uh, it's been a, it's been a great uh, great joy having you here. And uh, before we leave, mm-hmm. I wonder if you could give our uh, listeners uh, a a few uh, resources that they might turn to if they want to uh, know more about this.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so. Uh- I would say there are two books that have always been uh, key guides for me, although they both um, either stop at 1865, 1870 or um, sort of deal with the post 1865 period relatively cursorily. Um, so the two books that I would recommend um, in this regard are Catherine Hall's uh, Civilizing Subjects, um, which is a book she she is uh, she's actually uh, Stuart uh, Stuart Hall's wife. Um, and she has made a career out of uh, doing just really fascinating work. And um, in the early 2000s, she published Civilizing Subjects, which was about sort of compared um, the, the sort of missionaries um and particularly dissenting missionaries so in the in the british context these are protestant missionaries who are not necessarily part of the anglican church so baptists sure. methodists etc uh quakers um and she sort of looks at their work in jamaica during the emanci- the, the during the early sort of post emancipation period so roughly 1830 to to 1867 um and then also Focuses on where they've come from, and for her, she really focused on Birmingham, which is where a lot of sort of uh, pretty ra- fairly radical uh, abolitionist activity uh, occurs. So the intellectual ties between um, these two uh, these two groups, um, and then notes how abolitionists and missionaries themselves were quite disappointed with how freed people um, dealt with uh, with emancipation, um, and she she basically argues that that disappointment. Um, led to new forms of racial ide new right. new kinds of racial ideas. Um, so she so so civilizing subjects I think is is really is, is a really key text. Um, the other text actually is earlier from 1992, which is Thomas Holtz, um, the Problem of Freedom. Hmm. And here um, he really talks about sort of the contradictions of li- of the liberalism that really formed the ideas around abolition and what that freedom was going to look like um, and the ways that those then again sort of fed into racial conceptions and racial ideas. Um, Now he goes from 1832 to 1938, um, but again, most of the book is is taken up with a very careful um, reading of political and intellectual ideas um, from from the moment of deciding what emancipation was supposed to be and what it was supposed to look like um, all the way through. Uh, more at Bay uh, and beyond. Um, let me see if there's anything else I'd write. You know, I'd actually also recommend the work of Laura Putnam. Um, and I'll just give a, a broad recommendation of all of her work. Um, because she is the scholar who, for me, I think does the most with situating the British Caribbean in the basin itself. So she is, uh, she's done a lot of work on the waves of migration uh, from the British Caribbean into uh, Central America, um, into, the, into the canal zone. Um, and so she's, the, for me, the leading scholar. And she, she, she is very prolific. Um, she's a historian at uh, the University of Pittsburgh. Um, but she's done a lot of, I think, the best work
3: on um, the sort of area studies model of how to think about the British Caribbean.
2: All right, well, we'll have
3: uh, information about uh, these uh, sources on our website.
2: Excellent. And uh, again, thanks so much for coming in and talking to Thank us. Thank you for having it's me. Been it's a been a pleasure. Yeah,
0: I've really enjoyed it.
1: Slavery and Its Legacies is brought to you by the Gilda Lehrman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition, a part of the Whitney and Betty MacMillan Center for International and Area Studies at Yale University. Production support is provided by the Yale Broadcast Center. For more information about the center, its activities, and this podcast series, visit glc.yale.edu.